the primary concern when considering a man for ministry is not so much what he can do, but who he is. And in the world in which we live, the church culture in which we live, 21st century American evangelicalism, we have replaced that very basic biblical concept with necessities for what the man can do more than what the man is. I'm Kyle Grant, and I'm the lead pastor at Grace Bible Church. You know, biblical preaching is one of the highest priorities of our ministry. And I'm so thankful that you've chosen to listen. If you have any questions about our ministry or would like to know more about Christ, feel free to connect with us at www.gracebibleelkhart.com. Thank you again for spending these moments with us, and I pray that God transforms you by His grace through the Bible. And if you would go with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. We had a unique time in our church sermon calendar, service calendar, where we just finished a series through Ephesians, and I'm going to begin working through some core values and priorities of our church in the coming weeks, but I wanted to wait until after we have our annual business meeting with our congregation to be able to talk about those things and more officially roll those out. And so I had four weeks to preach whatever I want, which is pretty exciting. And the Lord led me to thinking through some things that I think will be valuable, specifically in relation to those core values that we're going to talk about. And then as you have just as a congregation, as a church family, our membership has elected uh, church officers, our deacons, and some questions that come up every time that we, we work through, we send out our deacon care group letter. I wanted to address the office of pastor and deacon in the pulpit of the next few weeks. I think, some, I think some helpful clarification and just some functional things should be addressed, and it'd be helpful to look at these in the scriptures, of course. And so over the next four weeks, today and next week, we'll look at the office of the pastor and then... The following two weeks, we'll look at the office of the deacon and work through these orderly aspects to the church. You, you notice that I have titled, the main title is Order in the Church, and then the subtitle is the office of the overseer this morning. And I take that phrase from Titus chapter 1, where Paul says that he, he left Titus there to set the churches in order, and the way that he set the churches in order is by the appointing of elders. So we understand that if order in the church, like the judge, like the judge presiding over the courtroom calls to order that courtroom, so the elders are responsible for presiding in order in corporate worship in the context of the local church. And so we are going to study the orderly office, the office of elder over the next two weeks. We're going to address several things today that I think will be necessary for addressing, but right off the bat, as we think about this concept, let me just ask you, if you were to, and I don't want you to do it out loud, just in your own heart, in your own mind, if I ask this question, I, I want you to think of your first answer. 
Maybe even write down your first answers. It was the first thing that comes to your mind. If you, if you can remember it, great. If not, maybe write it down at the bottom of your note sheet there. So I'm going to ask the question. I want you to respond with your first answer because your first answer is going to be the one that is probably most accurate about your thinking. You know, like when you're taking a test, they always say your first answer is usually right, right? What do you want from a pastor? Okay, so think of that, and then ask the second question. Maybe write it down. What do you want from a pastor? Secondly, what do you think a pastor is? What do you think a pastor is? Because those are the questions we're going to address over the next few weeks. I Googled this week. I just typed in, what do people want from a pastor? And I found the articles that had the most agreeing answers. Okay, I did not ask what a pastor is. I did not Google what should a pastor be. I Googled what do people want from a pastor. And I found the articles that had the answers that agreed most. And I could put them all together into this list that I'm about to share with you. A deep love and burden for people and souls. Everybody going to amen that? We all on board with that? A clear personal love for Jesus. In other words, the pastor has to love Jesus himself. Everyone on board with that? I mean, you want me to love Jesus, right? Okay. A warmth in personality that people respond to well. That was the third most, that was the third most listed answer. A warmth in personality. A unique ability to understand and explain God's Word. We all on board with that? That's one of the most explicitly biblical ones we've seen yet. An ability to emotionally engage with people, public and in private. Emotionally engage with people, both in public and in private. It's nice, right? Is it biblical? A clear communicator. Actually, I would say that one is biblical. Paul says in Ephesians, or in Colossians, pray for me to speak the gospel with clarity, which is how I ought to speak. I think that is an explicitly biblical one. An authentic, honest awareness of his own heart and personal brokenness. That's a lot of words. Sincere, humble, I think is what we're going for there. A strong ability to empathize. Again, nice. Should we ask the question? Biblical. Maybe. Competence. Character was, in all of these lists, they were all kind of listed. Character was usually five or six down the list. You can you could go home and Google this yourself. Vision, his ability to cast a vision, his team-building ability, and his self-awareness. All of these are the most commonly given answers. I'm going to suggest to you that less than half of those are truly biblical requirements. Let's just walk through some of the other ones. Let's walk back through them. An ability to emotionally engage people both public and in private. How many of you have ever heard the name Jonathan Edwards? We know who Jonathan Edwards is? Jonathan Edwards is maybe the most famous pastor in American history. Not only is he the most famous pastor in American history, he's actually one of the most, even by secular standards, 
bright minds in American history, one of the first American true philosophers. And he was a pastor, kind of a kind of kind of a uh, like a like a prodigy pastor, but completely detached from his people emotionally. Completely detached. And it wasn't his fault. There, I guarantee you, every room that Jonathan Edwards ever walked in, he was the smartest guy in the room. I guarantee you. He couldn't help it. He didn't know how to connect with people. Does that make him an unbiblical pastor? That's a question we have to ask. Listening ability, that's great, but is it biblical? Team building ability, that's great, but is it biblical? Self-awareness, it's a very valuable skill, but that's different than humility, which is biblical. In all of this that I am saying, the most alarming thing to me is that character was not top of the list on all of them. Because what you realize when you study the New Testament is that the primary concern, listen, the primary concern in the calling of a minister is his character. That's our main idea for this morning, and I'll show you from the text. The primary concern when considering a man for ministry is not so much what he can do, but who he is. And in the world in which we live, the church culture in which we live, 21st century American evangelicalism, we have replaced that very basic biblical concept with necessities for what the man can do more than what the man is. Is he funny? Is he cool? Is he, we heard the word, engaging? Is, can he get people excited? Does he know how to communicate and connect with everyone? And all, is he charismatic? All of these things that are ultimately personality gifts. But what the New Testament expects fundamentally is a man of godly character. Having said that, having introduced, that was all introduction. Having said that, let's read our text. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-7. through 7. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Let's pray. We'll begin to work through this text together. Father, we're thankful to be before your word, and I pray that it would transform us now. I pray that you'd clarify all of our thinking. I pray that you would give us a healthy view of church because of a healthy view of your word. I pray that in this time you would strengthen the elders of the church, 
We think of Pastor Brandon away getting rest. We're so thankful for him. And I pray that he would rest well with his family. I pray that you'd strengthen myself in the word to become this kind of person. I pray that in this time you would raise up for yourself young men who desire to serve you in the office of overseer. And I pray that you strengthen your church both now and in the ages to come through our time this morning. And we ask all of this through Christ. Amen. The book of Timothy is written to the pastor, presumably at the church in Ephesus. That's the, that's the overwhelming evidence or that, that Timothy pastored either the largest or one of the, one of the predominant congregations in Ephesus. And so it's, a, it's one of the pastoral epistles, you know this, it's written by Paul to a young man in ministry. We know that he's young because Paul says to him in chapter 4 that you shouldn't let anyone despise you for your youth. And so he's writing to this young pastor. We also know, based on what he says specifically in chapter 1 and again in 2 Timothy chapter 1, that, um, that we're probably dealing with a man of insecurity. We're probably dealing with a man who is fearful. We're probably dealing with a man who's feeling the the weight of his calling, because Paul says he doesn't want him to fear. And so we just get an idea a little bit about who, Paul, who Timothy is. But what, what, Timothy's, what Paul is doing in this book is he's providing kind of this ongoing manual, both for how, how Timothy should grow as a believer and how the, the people should think about the church as this letter is received, and the way that Timothy should be leading in the congregation. So as Timothy, and then as as we'll talk about a little bit throughout the day today and the next week, as Titus is responsible for raising up elders, raising up pastors, it's obviously important that we deal with the primary description of what a pastor should be, who a, who a pastor is to be. And so this character resume or this character qualification or this character checklist is given for us very specifically in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and he'll list the same in Titus chapter 1, or essentially the same. But I want you to note, first of, first of all with me, the noble calling in verse 1. The noble calling. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. That word noble has the idea of worthy of commendation, or worthy of honor, or worthy of respect. It's a commendable task. It's a reverential task. It's an honorable task. I want, to, I want to inform you of the few words used in the New Testament for the office of pastor. Now, I'm going to give you three words, but they all have the same office. It's three descriptions of one office. It's not three different offices. So when I say these things, I don't want you to think, okay, we've got one pastor, and we've got one elder, and we've got one shepherd. I, I, want, you to, I want you to think of them as three and the same. It's three different descriptions of one, one office. The first of all, the first one is the one we see in the text. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. This word overseer has the idea of administration or oversight or leadership. One who is exercising oversight, one who is exercising leadership in the church. You and I tend to think of leadership as primarily maybe functional or managerial. That is not the only thing in mind here. In fact, it's not the primary thing in mind here. It's the one who has the ability to lead people in a positive direction. We see the same, I'm going to read you these, 
the sister text that you get a full understanding of some pastoral theology here. Acts chapter 20, verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock, so that's implicit of the idea of shepherd, over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. 1 Peter chapter 5, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Hebrews 13, 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. This word leaders, this word leaders, remember your leaders is the same word, exercising leadership oversight. Now obviously, in their, in their purest applications, I understand that these are instructions for me. These are instructions for Pastor Brandon as the pastors and elders of our church. So the way that you receive this is to make sure that your expectations and your definitions align with what we see in the Word and that it causes a right relationship between pastor and congregant, shepherd and sheep, leader and follower. And we shouldn't hesitate with that terminology, leader and follower. To be a disciple of Christ is to be a follower. To be a disciple of Christ is to resign yourself to the reality that you will follow. And within the institution of the church, God has set it up so that there are leaders, the primary leaders, leading in discipleship and an oversight of the church. There are, of course, biblical responsibilities in which the pastor leads. The ordinances, the preaching of the word, leading in corporate worship, leading in church discipline. These are tasks the pastor, in which the pastors exercise oversight. You, as a congregant, are not called to these things. The word elder in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you may put what remained into order. 1 Peter chapter 5, so I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder, Peter's saying to the elders, from an elder, to the pastors, from a pastor, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. This word elder has the idea of honored one. It does not, in this text, necessitate the idea of age, but it does imply the idea of age as respect in regards to respectability. In other words, this word elder is one they would have considered to be older, therefore they would have given him honor, but it doesn't necessitate the idea of, of age. In other words, the pastor doesn't have to be one who is older. We know this because I've already said Timothy is a young pastor, and Paul is not going to appoint a pastor that is going to be outside of biblical parameters. So the pastor himself doesn't have to be older. He can be young, but he is to exhibit a quality of life that is respectable like one who is older may exhibit. So it has the idea of one who lives in an honorable way, like one who has lived this life honorably for many years. It is, it is a position of honor. This is why Paul says to Timothy, flee youthful lusts. Don't be like a young person. Don't be immature. And of course, I understand I'm speaking into a context where your pastors are not very old. And so I'm thankful for your humility in receiving us. And you should, of course, understand that the weight of that is primarily on us because we could lose it like that with immaturity, with youthful foolishness. And the picture of the pastor as shepherd, this is my favorite one of the three because 
it tends to be the most intimate. Acts chapter 20, verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. You are the shepherd of the flock. So actually we we have two pictures in, two descriptions in the same verse. The description of overseer, the title of overseer, and implicit is the picture of the shepherd. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. He's the overseer. As the shepherd gathers his sheep and his lambs to himself, and he provides the food, and he carefully tends their wounds, and he carefully listens to their bleeding, so the shepherd is to have, yes, an aspect of, of respectability in how he lives and in being an elder. He's supposed to move people. He's supposed to be a leader exercising oversight. But he's to do it with the tender care of a sheep, of a shepherd caring for his sheep. One pastor says it this way, every good pastor smells like sheep. Being with, spending time knowing who they are, knowing how they struggle, knowing where their fears are, knowing what their grief is, and giving them food. You understand that the primary, you understand, this is very important, you understand this, the primary responsibility of the shepherd, understood it the way the the biblical writers use it, was to provide food to constantly find the greenest pastures, to move the sheep into food with the nourishment that they are receiving that the shepherd provides. Therefore, the primary responsibility of the shepherd exercising leadership and oversight is not to force feed you, but to lead you to the food and to help you eat. Congregations who require being spoon-fed reveal immaturity in their pastoral theology. Because the shepherd's job is to help the sheep find healthy, full, nourishing food so that they can eat on their own. No true shepherd takes the food and forces it down the sheep's mouth. That's unhealthy for the sheep. And so these three descriptions describe one office, the office of elder, the office of pastor or, or, or overseer, and the office of, the description of shepherd describing the office of pastor. So let's just do a little biblical check here. How are your expectations aligning thus far with the biblical expectation? So now, having noted the noble calling, Paul says it's a desirous one. Which, by the way, I I wanted to just at this moment give a little bit of like personal testimony, some pastoral heart here. I think it's so interesting that Paul says if anyone desires a noble calling, if anyone desires this office, they desire a noble task. I think it's very interesting. Because there, this aspect of desire clearly places the weight of, it seems like it places the weight of the calling in the individual. 
Let's say that again. It seems like it places the weight of the calling in the individual. In other words, I, I want to be a pastor, therefore I'm going to be a pastor. Or I want to be a preacher, therefore I want to be a preacher. It sounds like a human want. And I would just push back on that and suggest to you that when we talk about ministry call, any kind of moving of the Spirit for a man to follow God's will into the pulpit is not an internal desire in himself. It's an internal desire worked by God's Spirit. And then I think it's an, internal, it's an external desire that, is, that is an internal desire that is affirmed externally by other people coming and, and affirming ministry gifts and encouraging maybe one who communicates the word well to become a pastor or to think about a pastor. And, 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 and because of this, I think this actually gives you as a congregation an incredible responsibility. As you maybe interact with a young man or maybe hear him teach Sunday school or notice his character, to come to him and encourage him on his way. Paul talks about ministry desire being a, a flame, fan into flame the gift that is in you. And you have to ask that question, what lit that flame? And my suggestion is that the only rational answer is God's Spirit. And here's the reason it's the only rational answer. Um, it's a lot to sign up for of your own volition. Let me just put it this way. Do you remember what Paul says when he lists all of his sufferings in ministry in 2 Corinthians chapter 12? This is so, it's almost comical. It's interesting to me. Just think of that text in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when Paul's thinking through all the things he suffered on the behalf of the gospel. I mean, it's an extensive list. I was sick a lot. I got beat a lot. Twice with rods. Several times I was scourged. I floated in the ocean. A day floating in the deep. In, in perils of enemies, in other words, there were people who tried to kill me. In perils of, of beasts, in other words, there were animals that tried to hurt me. After listing all of this misery for the gospel, does anyone remember the last one that he says? And daily there is the burden of the churches. Now, I'm not, it's not that I'm feeling sorry for myself, but that's not what I'm doing. Church is a burden, and it's a burden on you, and it's a burden on your shepherd. And you could ask the question, what keeps a man doing this? And it's the same thing that keeps a man doing this that started it. God's Spirit. I did not want this for myself. This is where I'm giving my testimony. I did not want this. Now, I knew it's what God wanted. But I fought for a long time. Do you know why I fought? I mean, I knew. I was in high school. I was probably 16. And I was probably 15, and I knew it. And I wanted what I wanted, and I wanted to live for myself. And there were things I wanted to do and things that I knew I was good at, and I wanted to do that. And I wanted to make a lot of money. But that was all my just human rationale. The real reason I didn't want to do this is because my dad was a pastor, and I saw what it did to him. And I didn't want to do that. I was selfish. And so there was a time where I went forward and just lost it on the altar because I knew that's what God wanted. It was not a want that I had. It was a want that God had. And now I can't imagine life any other way. I want it now. Because that's what the Spirit of God does. So let me just encourage you as a congregation to be in tune to the young men in our church, to notice gifting, 
But if you begin to see a flame that maybe the Lord is stoking, you could be the one to come and help fan that flame. Because he may be struggling with what God wants for him, and you may have the opportunity to provide some rich encouragement and admonition. So we note the noble calling together. Secondly, we note the noble character, what is required in the man. And this is why I started the way that I did. Because I tend to think today that people think about what a, what a pastor can do. What can a pastor do? What gifts are you going to bring? What functional abilities are you going to bring with you that we can plug into our church and use? Now, of course, there's an aspect just to be efficient within how something runs, that that's a, that's a, that's a factor. But, but the biblical disposition, I've already said, the biblical disposition, the biblical priority when considering a pastor is not so much what he can do, but who he is. And this is clear in the text. I'm just going to walk through these characteristics very quickly. I'm going to do my best to be very quick and thorough, but they're ones that you need to, of course, be familiar with so that you can keep us accountable and so that you can keep your own expectations in check. What do you want from a pastor? What do you think a pastor is? Well, first of all, a pastor is to be above reproach. This is actually the overarching qualification over all of these. So he is to be above reproach in these ways. This, I, this word literally has the idea, there's nothing for which you can obviously accuse him. It does not say the pastor is to be perfect. And we're very thankful for that. Because you wouldn't have a pastor if that were the case. It says the pastor is to be above reproach. There's nothing in his life with which you can, that you can obviously accuse him. Well, there's this massive gaping character flaw. You know, he's really good at preaching, but he's always screaming at people in, the, in his office. That's a problem. You know, he's, he's a really gifted communicator. He's, he's really good at leading people, but, you know, his, his, his language is really a problem, and his road rage is really a problem. Those are accusable aspects. How he talks to his wife is really a problem. How he treats people of the opposite gender, either appropriate, either like, like inappropriately in flirtatious terms or, or putting them down or, or, or whatever, is really a problem. Those are things that are obvious that accusation can be brought against him. The pastor is to be above reproach. In other words, there is an aspect of your pastor, though he's not supposed to be perfect, where you should be able to look up to him. Now, I know you can't do that with me physically, but spiritually, the goal is for you to be able to say, look, I know he's not perfect, and he's proved it this time and this time and this time and this time, or whatever. Hopefully not that many times, but, but his character is above reproach before the Lord. And we're still working on Pastor Brandon, right? He's not even here to defend himself. That's the goal. He has a character that is a step above. And you want that. You don't want to be following someone behind you. You don't want to be decreasing to a level. He's to be above reproach. Nothing in his life for which you can obviously accuse him. All right, qualification check mark number one, above reproach. He is to be the husband of one wife. There are so many ideas about what this means. I'm going to give you mine because I think 
contextually, it's the most consistent. In a culture in which Paul is speaking into polygamy, I think he is addressing uh, he, a pastor should not be polygamous. He should not have one wife at a time. Now, there, there are a lot of views here about divorce and remarriage and how that pertains to a pastor. However, I think the details of that aspect get lost. Well, you know, you know, well, whose fault was it? Can the pastor still be a pastor after divorce? All of those things. I think that's really not the question. I think the question we have to ask is, is he still above reproach in his marital situation? Because remember, all of these kind of fall under the first category. So he used to be the husband of one wife. And can I just say this? He used to have appropriate relationships with the opposite gender. Husband of one wife, there should be an appropriateness about him. I don't, think that should be, I don't think that should be detachment. There are some men that I know who are so sensitive to this that it's like they don't even talk to the ladies in their church, and I think that's probably swinging the pendulum. It's like they don't even shepherd the ladies in their church. That's a problem, especially as we consider most churches today are predominantly female. Did you know that? Most churches in the evangelical sphere, at least, are predominantly made up of females. Men don't go to church as much. He's to be the husband of one wife. He's to have a marriage that is above reproach. And I'm, I'm going to address something right here, right in the middle, because I think it's helpful before we get to these other qualifications. And this is a hot button right now, and I know I'm stepping in it, okay? But some things are worth stepping in. The past, one, of the, one of the things the pastor is he, he, he gatekeeps the theology of the church. He gatekeeps the doctrine of the church. Husband of one wife implies heavily the pastor is male. That the primary preaching voice in the congregation is a man. Now, I'm not sure how much you keep up, keep up with modern evangelicalism, what's going on out there. But I think it's worth saying because this is, this is becoming a very popularized idea, even with men that I once considered really good pastors and movements I, I once thought really good movements and things like that. I believe that women are such, I don't even know how to say this, it, 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 it understates it, an immense blessing to the congregation. I don't even know how to say that. Like, I, I, the one of the biggest, if I mean, from a human standpoint, an immense blessing to the congregation. I think ladies bring so many things to a congregation that a man doesn't. Just doesn't. I think they're better at so many things that men aren't. This is not a matter of ability. It is a matter of authority. And those two things often get confused. So when I'm about to say what I'm about to say, people hear this and they go, well, he's saying a, a, woman can't, a woman can't preach. A woman can't teach. I am not saying that from terms of ability. Do you know why? If you heard my wife teach, you would go, why doesn't she just teach all the time? It is a matter of authority and what we think about the Bible because I want you just to go up a few verses with me. You say, is this even worth talking about? If you knew how commonplace this is becoming, maybe you do, 
then you will agree it's worth talking about. We had someone visit our church not too long ago because their church is struggling through this, and this will continue to happen. Chapter 2, and I want, to, I want you to look with me at verse 11, because verse 11 is actually very important. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet, verse 15, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, the typical dispositions toward, disposition toward that text is incredibly negative. They only hear can't, won't, quiet, permit, whatever. But I actually want you to hear it the way Paul means it, the way that it's understood in this culture. You understand that Paul is speaking into a brand, I mean, not brand new, a relatively new thing, which is the church. I mean, this, this kind of new system, this new economy, this new, this new thing that these people are all getting used to. And there's a lot of Jews here. And their understanding of temple is that the temple is reserved for the learning of the, do you know, men. And that the ladies, when they come to receive it, they have to do it within certain parameters of male authority. Or they're really not in allowed, allowed in at all because they're, they're farther away than the men are in the temple worship. He's also speaking into a culture of paganism, where women were viewed with no value at all, objectified, abused. And so actually what he's doing when he says let, that word let in verse, in verse 11 is very important. It is a permissive word saying, let the woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. What he's saying is, she has privilege now to receive the word just like the man. She has opportunity in the, in the union of the church to, not, to, to receive the word in the same way the man does. There's no longer divisions in the church. This is a positive statement of unity, which is what he means in Colossians chapter 2. Here there's no barbarian, Scythian, Jew, Greek nor Jew, male nor female. They are one in Christ. Paul is arguing for essential oneness, spiritual oneness. He is not arguing for functional equality. Functional equality means that since we are the same, we can do the same things. Listen, that's not even true in the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. You understand that? That's not even true in the family. Essentially unified, but functionally, they do different things. Does Jesus submit to God the Father? Yes, he does. It was read for us earlier. There are functional differences, but essential unity. And this is what Paul is referring to. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority in the church. Another very important question. Can you exercise authority 
without, or can you teach the word without exercising authority? No, you cannot. Because the word bears its own authority. When the word is communicated, it is the exercise of authority. It is an exercise of the authoritative word. And so it's not possible. Now I want you to see the second value of the woman in the passage. Because this one's awesome. This one's awesome. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman. This is verse 14. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness and self-control. What in the world does that mean? Well, there's, there's a lot of what it means, you know, within this text, but I, I, I want to connect this text to the large of the whole of biblical understanding. She shall be saved through childbearing. Question, how is anybody saved? By the incarnate Son shedding His blood. And what was God's plan in providing the incarnate Son? The young lady on the hillside receiving the message from the angel. The woman's honor in the text is that God will use her to provide the Savior. She shall be saved through childbearing. But listen, so will everybody. So what is typically understood is this very negative passage, the way it's read and thought of. Paul has given wonderful worth to ladies in this text. Incredible value to the woman. So we just have to ask ourselves then, why is it such a problem when the Bible says that we're not allowed to do something? There's things I can't do according to God's authority. And do we believe the Bible is authoritative? Because if it is, then we have to obey what it says. I do not permit a woman to exercise authority in teaching the Word. And there's a lot of ideas about what this means in culture and, and, and well, what did it mean then versus what did it mean what it means now. And all of those have rational explanations, which I don't have time to get into now. But if you want to talk to me about it, I'd be glad to. At the end of the day, you have to ask yourself the question, do you believe the Bible is authoritative? Because if you do, the apostle who's providing apostolic authoritative teaching says, here's what the lady's not allowed to do in the context of the church. And so this is something that we should become well familiar with in the culture in which we live. He's to be the husband of one wife. The, the pastor is to be a man. The teacher of the word is to be a man. And listen, ladies, if you are tempted to think that that's a privilege that you know, you've got the short end of the stick on, and men have it so good because we can preach, you don't know the tears on my Bible. You're probably not listening to James when he says not many of you should become teachers because you'll be held in stricter judgment. You're actually wanting what God himself says is unwise to desire. And I've already told you the only reason I'm here is because of God. I didn't want this for myself. I will stand before God the Father and give an account, Hebrews 13, for your souls. Do you want that? 
Is that what you want so bad? That's scary. That's crushing. Be careful what you wish for and what you grasp for. He's to be the husband of one wife. He's to be above reproach in his marriage. He's to be sober-minded. This is sound in judgment. This is the idea of wisdom. He's supposed to be able to think clearly and provide clear thought for others. This also maintains the idea of self-control. His appetites aren't out of control. He's to be prudent, wise, sound-minded, both in body and in mind. He knows what he needs to do, and he knows how he needs to do it. And he trusts, trusts the Lord with his wisdom and with his body, and he lives out in such a way that he processes biblically, not selfishly or humanistically. He's to be respectable. Literally, this has the idea of well-balanced. This word literally means well-balanced, not abrasive or qualities evoking admiration. Have you ever met somebody, you ever met somebody, and you meet them, and you go, I don't know why, I just like that guy. I don't know what it is about that person, I just really like her. I just really want to hang out with her. I just really spend more time with her. It's a quality of life that draws your respect, not perfection, but draws your admiration. He's to be able to teach or apt to teach. This is the only qualification that's different than is listed in the qualification of deacon. He does not require the deacon to be able to teach. The man of God should be able to communicate the word of God with clarity and boldness. Not addicted to wine, he doesn't linger in drinking alcohol. It doesn't say he doesn't drink, although that, in my opinion, is the, the wiser disposition. It's the biblical disposition that, that, that strong drink should be at least, at least considered with avoidance. Paul himself tells Timothy for his health to take a little wine, but this has the idea that he controls his appetites. He doesn't linger in drinking. By the way, the same applies to the man's diet because that, that, befits, that befits a self-controlled man. If I balloon up to 500 pounds over the next few years, you should be concerned, okay? Because that, that indicates, that reveals a lack of self-control. No restraint over my appetites. He's not a brawler or he's not quarrelsome, some translations say here. He's one who doesn't fight both with his words or his body. He's not hot-headed. I think that this one doesn't probably get the attention that it should because I think we live in a world that's very quarrelsome, mostly due to social media and specifically as it pertains to pastors. They're always finding something to nitpick. They're always finding someone to poke. They're always someone finding someone to fight against. It's really hard to shepherd the flock of God that is among you when you're really concerned with picking at other pastors. That just takes too much time. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, not the people on the internet you'll never meet. Gentle, reasonable, and approachable. You can come to him and he won't fly off the handle. He'll create an atmosphere where he's at least willing to listen, but will give you truth. Listen, listening does not always mean affirming. 
If you come to my office for biblical counseling, if you set up an appointment for biblical counseling, I'm going to counsel you. It's not just an opportunity for you to vent. There's biblical counsel involved. Those things are different. If you want someone just to listen to, I'd be glad to do that. Life gets hard, and I understand that. But this idea of gentleness has the idea that he can give truth in a reasonable and approachable manner. He's not a lover of money. He's not greedy. He's not consumed by finances. The New Testament does have some things to say about the pastor's finances, but this, in relation to his character, is that he's not going after money, which automatically helps us spot like a lot of people on TV as inappropriate, phony pastors. Listen, if Joel Osteen's your guy, you're starving. If you're tricked by that smile and you want to send in your cash, he's got you. If Kenneth Copeland is using you to fund his fleet of jets, that's what he's doing. He's using you. And he's using God. And he's manipulating the Word of God to feed his flesh. And he's sending people to hell while he's doing it. He must not be greedy. He manages his own household. He maintains the discipleship of his home. Listen, I, I'm alarmed when pastors aren't active in their families. I'm alarmed. When he pastors the church and she raises the kids. That's a problem. Because that will leak into the congregation. Where the man, he's just not active. And, and listen, sometimes that's on the congregation. Uh, that, I'm not saying that about you. But sometimes it's on the congregation. They expect so much of him. They'll fire him if he doesn't work 70 hours a week. And he's discipling all their kids. But his kids are at home starving because he has to give them to everyone else too much time. Sometimes it's on the congregation. But sometimes it's on him. He's a workaholic. He doesn't care for his family. You should be able to trust your pastor will give you good family advice, and you should be able to see it on display, not perfectly, but at least consistently in the home. Does that mean my kids are going to yell in the foyer? It absolutely means that. And some of you have seen it. It might happen today. Because kids are kids, and no matter how good of a parent you are, sometimes they're going to scream in the foyer, right? But you should be able to trust your elders, your pastor's management of his own household. I, I heard, I mean, heartbreaking. I heard just weeks ago of a pastor of a healthy, wonderful, good ministry. He needs to step out because, because his kids are causing chaos. That doesn't happen overnight. That happens in a culture where maybe the church expects just way too much and the pastor, or the pastor gives too much to his church and not enough to his home. He must not be a recent convert, not new to the faith. You know, when some young guy gets saved and he experiences, he, he shows good gifts and good passion and good boldness, and he, he really looks like he could be great, and we just you, you platform him too quickly and whatever, you're actually opening him up, opening him up to spiritual temptation. You don't want someone who's charismatic and funny and a good personality and good leader but spiritually immature leading your church the church will follow that 
and a good reputation with unbelievers respected in the community. He must be well thought of by outsiders. Can I just be really specific with you? Can I be really practical with you? Do you know one of the reasons, I always have more than one reason for something, but do you know one of the reasons we do outreaches where we go into the community? Because I want them to know the pastors and be thought of well by outsiders. A good reputation with unbelievers. That being said, let me say this. I read a stat stat this week. The reasons people gave for why they visited a new church. 56% was because a friend invited them. Six was because the pastor invited them. Do you know why that is? I'll not meet your friends. I mean, not all of them. Maybe some of them. So that when you get your friends here and you invite your friends here and I meet them because I do my best to greet visitors... They can go, oh, wow, I mean, the, the pastor was at least nice to me. He at least said something to me. He at least said hi to me. He greeted me or whatever. Because this is a part of his character, a good reputation with unbelievers. I'm not nice to my neighbors just because Christians are supposed to be nice to neighbors. You are. But because they know what I do. I want to have a good reputation with them. Because it says something about who I serve. So, let me ask you, having done this qualification checklist now, what does a pastor do, and who is a pastor? What do you want from a pastor? We're going to talk next week about the message of the pastor, and what he's supposed to say, and what he's supposed to do, but what are your expectations? Do they align with the biblical expectations? Do they align with what God says? Yes, it's, it'd be, I mean, it'd be great if he was funny. It'd be great if he was tall. It'd be great if whatever. It'd be great if he was charismatic. It'd be great. But none of that's necessary for the, the work of God in the church of God to continue fueled by the word of God, bringing people to the Son of God, building the kingdom of God. He needs people. He wants people, men, who are not perfect, but they are above reproach in in these ways, and so should your expectations be. And I'm thankful to be in a culture where it's largely understood. But as we talk about this office and the office to come, how should you respond to it? You should respond making sure your biblical or your expectations for who leads the church and who leads you align with God's. Not with what you want, not with what you think, not with what the culture is telling you a good pastor is, a good pastor does, but what God says. A man not of charisma, a man of character. Let's pray.